love to sing that song. I decided to follow Jesus. Now comes the sermon. <laughs> Who are we without our stuff? That's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question to try to ask in light of this morning's gospel text. What are we without our stuff? For most of us here, we are citizens of consumption and devotees to materialism. As Australians, by birth or by choice, we are brand identified, aren't we? Our patterns of consumption identify us and project who we are. Some of us like to project success and others of us, others like to project social responsibility with what we purchase. We are either PC or Mac, we are either Android or iPhone, we are either Google Chrome or Microsoft Explorer, we're either Ford or Holden, we're Jetstar or Virgin, we either shop at Coles or Woolworths, or for some of our poorest ones, we shop at Aldi and NQR, don't we, sweetheart? <laughs> not quite right. Now, I'm not saying I am any different. I have uh, my brand identifications down to a science. I can justify my choices of stores where I shop at. I know why I use the mobile phone service provider that I use, and I even know which fast food chain I'd rather eat at. Which reminds me, when the kids were little back then, because of television, all kids were exposed and still are to brand recognition. And if we were out in our car, and the kids, with the kids in the back seat shopping and running errands, if I or Giselle ever mentioned something like, well, Neil, it's, or Giselle, it's late in the afternoon, do, do you want to grab some McDonald's before heading home? The back seat of the car would erupt. <laughs> I want McDonald's, I want McDonald's, you know. And so we came up with code words. Has anyone come up with code words as parents? Huh? To circumvent the big ears that sat in the back seat of the car. So McDonald's became Scottish food. Hey, Tim's like, what? <laughs> really? That's what we're all about. <laughs> so McDonald's became Scottish, and we had all sorts of codes. So to stop the because brand recognition, even with little kids, and everyone is just too much. So the first question Jesus raises in this passage from Luke fourteen twenty-five to thirty-three is. Who are these people without their families? That's the first question he raises. What are you without your family? We hear Jesus give a series of renunciations. So the first one is in 26 to 27. Whoever comes to me does not, uh, and does not hate father, mother, wife, child, brothers, sisters. Yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. These first two in the renunciations of our family and of life. The third is a renunciation of possessions. In verse 33 he says, So therefore, none of you can become my disciples if you do not give up all your possessions. Now, since the beginning of this year, we have been studying the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is uh, predominantly is the predominant text 
for year C of the liturgical calendar, which we're in at the moment. So one of the aspects of Luke's Gospel is the remarkable inclusion of women as agents of the good news. This inclusion extends itself all the way through into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, the book of Acts. Another characteristic of this Gospel is the frequent mention of the need to give up or to step away from material things. It is in Luke that the disciples were told that they would need nothing to go on their journeys. It's in Luke that we are told to hold the material things of this world very lightly. We are warned against the law of reciprocity, the law which always looks for a payoff. In fact, we are told that we are more blessed when we give than when we received. Now all this has a, a squirm factor to it, doesn't it? This makes me squirm, as I hope it makes you squirm, particularly when Jesus says, you don't need anything to go on a journey because I like to prepare. And being prepared usually means going and buying some of the best stuff you can. But the most awkward part of this passage is the whole hate thing. Verse 26, hate father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters. It's awkward. It's awkward. It's awkward because it makes me think about the worst case scenarios. I'm thinking about people who leave their families and don't speak to them ever again because of bad experiences with abuse or with rejection. I'm thinking about people who choose to cut themselves off or they're cut off because they have been abandoned or disowned. Now before we go down some dark and depressive rabbit hole this morning, I want to know what this hate thing is all about. So let's think about this. We're reading something that's 2,000 years old. We are literally having an intercultural encounter with Jesus' words. Jesus speaks to a time when family and tribal affiliation was everything. Everyone was the son of. Everyone was the daughter of. Today we don't understand that. We are all individualistic. We operate and move through this life as an individual with our preferences and our needs. But in the early church, conversion to Christianity wasn't on an individual basis. Entire families were converted. Entire tribes were converted or they weren't or they didn't get converted. So families provided access, they provided security, families provided inheritance rights, and they provided a way of making a living. So if we think about it, who, is, who in this vast and varied collection of ancient tradition, traditions had no family connections enabling them to navigate their society? Well, when we think about this, I think about the widows, orphans, and the aliens in foreign lands. And all of these people were desperately disenfranchised. These were the first people who came to the early church, the disenfranchised, because family was fostered. Tribalism, in a good sense, was fostered because they didn't have any family to provide access and means of survival. So the church became that means. So willingly and freely, 
stepping outside of the family to tribal or tribal structure seemed to be insane. Now, my mother always would say that hate is a strong word, Neil. Hate is a strong word. Use it. Don't use it uh, flippantly. My mum was a good mum and she always tried to deter me from uh, hyperbolic tendencies. And so, with that in mind, let's con continue to, with our intercultural engagement with this text. It's good to know that <clears throat> many scholars say this term, translated as hate, was not a rejection, but a different understanding of priorities. The Greek word hate, meseo, means to love someone or something less than someone or something else. In other words, to renounce one choice in favour of another choice. It paints the word picture, which centres on moral choice, elevating one value over another. Therefore, to hate one's family was a way of saying that family would not be the primary affiliation or the only choice. So if we remember the Gospel text from last week, the one that led up to this one, uh, Jesus had been speaking to the potential disciples hanging around the home of the prominent Pharisee. Remember what Luke says in verse 1, and as he narrates, as he opens up the narration of chapter 14 in verse 1, what does he say? They were watching him closely. Those watching, those listening, were interested inquirers. They were interested admirers. These people were not committed disciples. These were the, <clears throat> the seekers. And so here is Jesus speaking to people who are considering commitment. And he wants them to have a sense of the importance of such a decision. This text is hyperbolic. But it gets the point across, and that's the point. Just as if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Jesus said many hyperbolic uh, statements throughout the Gospels. Jesus is telling us that discipleship comes first. Before family, before life, before your stuff. Whatever your stuff is, whether it's money, power, comfort, preference... Tradition, in God's economy, discipleship comes first. Now, in the next verses, Jesus does a strategic planning moment. There are a couple of little parables embedded in the text about being able to follow through. Could you build a tower without first making sure that you have sufficient funds? Uh, could someone go to war without figuring out likely if... Uh, that war could be won. Jesus is uh, concerned with calculating the cost before you and I begin a new adventure. So we cannot enter into uh, objectively important ventures without planning ahead. That's what he's telling us. Things in this life need to be thoroughly thought through all the way through. A decision to follow Jesus requires thinking all the way through the possible consequences of discipleship. Jesus wants us to do a cost-benefit analysis, a risk assessment. 
And Jesus makes his message very sticky at first using the hate language. He gets your attention straight away. Once he started using the hate language, he makes his, his message is sticky. It sticks in our mind. And then by giving vivid examples of what could happen when people don't plan ahead. So Jesus' dramatic language makes a point. And that point is the disciple, that discipleship is beyond most experiences in this life. Discipleship is beyond most experiences in this life. Discipleship is not convenient. Discipleship may cost us everything. After all, if loyalty to Jesus comes first, then everything, even the fundamental social structures of family and things, must come second. The words of Jesus today point back to the words of Jesus last week, where Jesus suggests to his dinner host in verses 12 and, 4, 12 and 13 of chapter 14, which we're, we've been um, looking at in the last two weeks. What does he say? Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbours, but invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. In other words, living by the law of reciprocity is antithetical to discipleship. However, following through on inviting those who cannot repay you can be risky. So, determine the costs. Look at the possible consequences of discipleship. Verse 27 says, Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And so this is really serious business as and Jesus tells us all through this text in Luke's Gospel that following him is serious business. The early part of Luke 14 emphasises the redemption and freedom that Jesus brings and also the inclusive nature of the kingdom of God. However, these inclusive and redemptive themes should not dull our senses this morning that here in today's Gospel text are some very difficult sayings of Jesus. We would all prefer for the preacher to teach us about God's grace. We would all prefer for the preacher to tell us about God's covenant loyalty, his redemption and his salvation. But here, this is where the rubber meets the road this morning. We cannot neglect what is expected from us as followers in return of that salvation, in return of that redemption. Salvation in Jesus is not merely a transaction this morning. It's a heart relationship. And no relationship lasts without loyal commitments and actions. Because the one who redeems us also calls us into costly discipleship. Jesus' command to follow me is both gift and demand. For some of us, the life of Christian discipleship is a work in progress. We may be still pondering these words of Jesus as we decide each day whether we want to be a disciple or not. However, if that's you, however, the question still remains the same. What are you without your stuff? What are you when you define yourself as a disciple instead of a person with stuff. Please pray with me. Loving God, you created us to be more than just our possessions, but to participate 
in your work in this world. As we choose each day to follow the life of Christian discipleship, remind us of who we are and whose we are. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.